0: Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Steve Hayes, here with senior writer David French and U.S. Senator Rob Portman, Republican from Ohio. Uh, We're happy to have uh, Senator Portman here today to talk about Ukraine, an issue he's been involved in for years, uh, the Electoral Count Act, and we'll probably get to a little bit of uh, his Cincinnati Bengals and the Super Bowl as well. Senator Portman, thanks for joining us on the Dispatch podcast. Uh, I want to jump right in and ask you about what's happening right now in Ukraine. Uh, you recently went over. You had a series of high-level meetings, presumably heard, uh, got the sense of the leaders of the Ukrainian government firsthand. I want you to to explain to our listeners what is happening on the ground there. What is Vladimir Putin doing and there's been a, a noticeable difference in the way that the Ukrainian government leadership has responded to it and talked about it, and the U.S. government, uh, particularly the Biden administration. I'd love to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me on, Steve. It's it's great to be with you guys, and congratulations on your successes with the Dispatch. Um, what's going on today is sort of a replay of you know what went on almost 80 years ago in Europe. You have a uh, in this case, authoritarian large countries saying, you know, we'd like to swallow up a smaller democratic country. And it's extraordinary that this is happening in the 21st century. And and the outrage uh, that so many free countries feel, luckily, is being channeled into something constructive, which is providing more arms and military assistance generally to Ukraine, which they're asking for to be able to defend themselves. And then the possibility of severe sanctions, which would have to be multilateral to be effective um, against Russia if they should make a terrible mistake and and go into Ukraine. But for the viewers who don't uh, follow this closely, I mean, they're probably wondering, you know, why would Vladimir Putin want to do this? It just doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, I think there are a few reasons, one of which is that Ukraine is slipping away. So eight years ago, they made a conscious decision to move away from their Russian-backed government, threw it out, and said, we want to have an elected government of the people. We want to be Democrats. We want to be like the EU and the United States and have a democracy and have a free market and you know have freedom of speech and freedom to gather and, and a free market economy and, and it's worked for them. They've got a pretty prosperous economy and they're beginning you know, to see the benefits of that. Uh, um, and I think frankly Vladimir Putin sees that in the polling, he sees that in, in, in the investments in Ukraine, and he's thinking, My gosh, if I don't move now, pretty soon this country is going to be a Western country. Second I do think he has concerns that they will join NATO at some point um, because of their progress and that that will put NATO on his border in a way that he finds, uh, you know, to be uh, problematic. NATO is a defensive organization. They're not interested in going on the offensive against Russia. They're just interested countries want to join and they meet the criteria. They're bringing them under the uh, so-called title five umbrella, which is a mutual defense, uh, you know, saying we'll defend you if you defend us. Um, In terms of, how people are reacting in ukraine versus uh the united states which is your question about you know what president Zelensky is saying versus what president biden might say uh first the obvious point they're together on the most important thing which is what russia is doing and the need for us to stand together to push back uh second uh though i do think uh, Zelensky has a little different constituency you know his is his people and his economy. He doesn't want to cause panic. He wants to keep the economy moving forward. He's worried that uh, people will disinvest and, uh, and some will leave the country. And so he's trying to find this balance where he wants to encourage countries to help him. He knows it's a serious threat, uh, but he also doesn't want to put Ukraine in a worse position economically, particularly. And then finally, this is something that's hard for us to understand here in, in the States, but he's been at war for eight years. So, I mean, when he and for office it was the war was going on his whole tenure there it's been going on it's, it's since 2014 when they decided to to move you know toward freedom and democracy there has been a constant fight and i've been there to the line of contact where russian troops and equipment is literally in ukraine in the Donbass region in eastern ukraine And, uh, you know, I I had to duck because there was sniper fire and they said, you know, keep your head down and, you know, you have to wear a helmet and a flak jacket and all that. It's been a hot war. Uh, They later took over part of Ukraine called Crimea. Um, And uh, so it's, you know, for, for them, this is terrible what's happening, the buildup. But on the other hand. You know, it's, it's a continuation, they think, in terms of, the, uh, of this, this war that they've had with Russia now for eight years. They have lost, by the way, between 14 and 15,000 Ukrainians. That would be the equivalent of us losing about 120,000 Americans. Think if we had done that. I mean, that's, that's more people than died in Vietnam, in Korea, in Afghanistan, and Iraq combined in terms of American you know, combat losses. That's in eight years they have lost that many Ukrainians. So for the Ukrainians, they kind of look at us and we say, my God, Russia, there might might be a war. Their their reaction is in part, yeah, (laughs) we've been living with it. And at some point you have to kind of live your life um, uh, knowing that that threat is always out there.
2: So, Senator, um, let's just presume most people understand, say, the balance of equities here. In other words, that Ukraine is Russia is the aggressor. Russia is trying to dominate Ukraine. If you're looking at this conflict from sort of a moral standpoint, uh, the aggressor here is clearly in the wrong. Ukraine has a clear right to defend itself. But then there's this uh, kind of argument that you've seen arising in the United States that says, who cares really about that? What we care about is American interests. And they can see Russian interests in dominating Ukraine, they can understand why Vladimir Putin would, would want to dominate Ukraine and to dominate the near abroad of Russia. But they flat out don't understand why we would care, why Americans would care. So what's your, and why it's an American interest to care. So if you're talking to somebody that is very skeptical as to why we're even making that much of a fuss about it, why would we even go to this point of, of trying to impose, impose punitive sanctions, much less send a few thousand extra troops into Eastern Europe. Why should we care?
1: Yeah, thanks David for, for asking that because I, I do think that that question is being raised by some. It's not a very large part of our country or our party, the Republican party, but there are some asking uh, because most get it uh, that this is a fight for freedom and America stands for freedom. But I guess a, a couple answers. One. It's not just about Ukraine. Uh, so even if you are willing to say that that's not important enough, which I'm not, but some, some would, uh, if you talk to people from the Baltic states, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, or Poland, let's, let's say for example, or other countries in the region, they, they are scared to death because they think they are next. And you know the, the buildup in Belarus is particularly problematic for Poland and Lithuania because they're right there at the border. Um, and there's a huge buildup on their borders as well, so it's a it's a domino effect, I guess it was called at one time. Um, they're worried that if it, if this happens, where will it stop? And again, that takes us back to eighty years ago, uh, you know, World War II, and when some people said uh, to the then aggressor, which was Hitler and the, the the Nazis, well, maybe we can appease them. Maybe we can we can give them what they want. Yeah, here in this country, and then they will they will stop. And quickly, it was it was determined that that was not where it was going to stop. So I guess that's part of it. To me, the biggest one though is that the United States, uh, again in the post World War II period, has been the guarantor in, in effect of, of the of the great peace that we've seen, relatively speaking. There've been conflicts, obviously, but nothing like uh, our great world wars, and. It wasn't so much as the world's policeman. We've been kind of like the sheriff. You know, we have a posse, and the posse is other freedom-loving countries in Europe, but also in Latin America and Asia, Africa. And they look to us to be the leader, uh, partly because we are the largest economy, and we have the most powerful military, and we have the, the means to do it. We have the ability to project force for peace. Ronald Reagan famously called it peace through strength. And people are beginning to wonder a little about that. Afghanistan being the most recent example of it, the chaotic and precipitous pullout from Afghanistan made a lot of people wonder, is America still there, you know, as the as the guarantor? John F. Kennedy wrote a speech that he never gave. He he was supposed to be delivered in the afternoon that he was assassinated, which called us uh, the watch guards on the walls of world freedom, Um, not by choice, but by destiny. And that's who we've been and who we are. So sometimes we like to kind of pull our horns in and go home and just say everything's going to be fine. But when you do that, what's going to happen with China and Taiwan? What's going to happen in the Middle East with Iran and their ambitions, you know, to have the, the is it the Golden Crescent all, all the way, you know, pushing Israel into the sea and really taking over Lebanon, which they're in the process of doing, in effect, through Hezbollah. What's going to happen in places like Latin America and Africa uh, if sovereign nations' boundaries are not respected? and it begins to unravel pretty quickly. And uh, U.S. interests are in all those places. So I I think we have a role to play that most Americans acknowledge. Uh, It's not, again, to be the world's policeman. Trust me, we've made mistakes, uh, including in Iraq, in my view, in Afghanistan and how we conducted it. We're not good at nation building, but we're pretty good at keeping the peace. And so I think this is a bigger issue. It's about liberty and freedom and democracy and all that, but it's also about the post-World War II order and and the rule of law being respected to keep that order. So I remember when President Bush of 41 was uh, in his cabinet room meeting with his cabinet, talking about what was going on then with regard to Saddam Hussein coming into Kuwait. And remember, like this situation, here's a bigger country, a neighboring country, authoritarian country, Uh, coming into Kuwait, taking over a a smaller country. And, um, you know, some people said, well, why do we care? You know, this is sort of, uh, you know, it's not really our fight. And this was not about the later Iraq war. This was about whether Saddam Hussein should be permitted to take over another country. And it was just in his heart, you know, like as a World War II veteran and as a patriot and as a person who believed that America's role was to project power to be able to keep the peace he was outraged by it personally and that's why we got into that conflict and by the way the senate only approved it by i think two or three votes the the resolution to use force which he you know he wanted to go to the senate and the house to get support but even if he hadn't gotten that support i think he would have done it because he felt like this cannot stand and we had a very successful effort at that point you know with a couple hundred thousand troops and colin powell and pushing pushing him out you can argue about what happened next uh, which, as I said, was problematic in some senses. But but I remember that sense from him. A guy was a junior staffer, then sitting in the back of the, you know, uh, along the railing in the room, listening to him talking about this and thinking, okay, that's the America that I want to identify with, that we have a role here, along with our allied nations. Remember, 42 countries joined us in that effort. And there So are how should we think
0: of, sorry, how should we think of Joe Biden in, in, in this context? I mean, you pointed out, what i think virtually everybody agrees was a calamitous withdrawal from afghanistan whether or not you agreed with the the policy objectives that he was following the way that we did it was was bad i worry about the message it sends uh, after 4 years of a trump of, of a president in trump who we might call non-interventionist maybe neo-isolationist he he made an argument he said look america should focus on america We should focus here. We shouldn't be as worried about these things overseas. Joe Biden has a long history uh, as a senator who was interested in in diplomacy, interested in foreign policy, made an argument about America's role in the world. And now we've seen him pull back from Afghanistan. And I would argue in the context of Ukraine, when you and Senator Cotton and some others were raising, um, maybe not raising alarms, but raising the issue with the troop buildup by Russia uh, on the Ukrainian border in the spring, the White House was late and pretty quiet, I think. And then fast forward to the fall and the most recent round of rhetoric coming from the White House, they, they seem to have sort of caught up and then kept going. Lots of discussion from the White House about an imminent attack from Russia. They've since decided that they don't want to be using the word imminent, but they are they sound alarmed. Uh, what does that tell us about Joe Biden and the way that he sees America's role in the world?
1: Yeah. Well, first, let me say I appreciate the fact that they have recently announced that we're going to send some troops to neighboring countries. You know, this is a few thousand troops, so it's 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 symbolic in some respects, but it's important. So the Polands and the Lithuanians uh, and the Latvias of the world are, are very happy um, to have some support, and these are troops that will be probably incorporated into a into a NATO force that is um, uh, likely to be. Uh, Part of this effort. So I, I appreciate that. Having said that, <laughs> you're right. They were slow to the game. Um, and, uh, you know, and then once they were in the game, uh, perhaps, uh, um, you know, not not quite as steady as you need to be. We talked about George H.W. Bush a moment ago. One of his strengths was his steadiness, including during the fall of the Berlin Wall. And, uh, you know, the the way he, as he said, he didn't dance on the wall. You know, he was steady. So. The, the rhetoric needs to be tough and firm and it needs to be um, backed up so you don't draw a red line as President Obama did and, and others have done over, over the years and they not back it up. You have to back it up. But um, so I wish they had done more earlier. I think it would have helped, but they are catching up now and I appreciate what they're doing. And I try to work with them because this is about America and our interests, in my view, very much so. And that requires bipartisanship. And the legislative branch and the executive branch working together to create the uh, strongest possible um, opposition to what Putin is doing uh, military assistance and sanctions and helping on the cyber attacks and the disinformation. That's all helpful to keep uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia from making the big mistake because it shows that if they do it, it will be a bloody, costly conflict and there will be. Consequences for the Russian economy that we've never seen before, because the sanctions will be so tough and so broad. Um, that's what that's what this needs to be about, and it doesn't need to be about uh, you know uh, saber rattling. Uh, it's just the opposite. Uh, Russia is the aggressor here, but firm and matter of fact, and um, and resolute. So, uh, Senator. By the way, can, can, can I just make make one one other point that I I. I hesitate to do this because, Steve, you're right, sometimes the America First agenda uh, was viewed as, you know, not supportive of our allies. The fact is, it was Donald Trump who provided defensive but lethal weapons to Ukraine for the first time. It was Donald Trump and his administration who expelled Russian diplomats (laughs) in a significant way uh, and let us send a very strong message. And there are other examples as well. It was, of course, the Trump administration that, you know, rebuilt our military again. This sort of has to happen every time a Republican president comes in. You know, you've got to restore the ability to project force. And He did that. So when some of the Trump supporters tell me, well, you know, why are we, what are we doing here? Why is this is not consistent with America? First, I remind them it was, it was Donald Trump that <laughs> provided that help to Ukraine when they needed it. And the Obama administration, despite my uh, advocacy and, you know, attempts to get them to do otherwise, would never provide that military assistance to Ukraine they were asking for to defend themselves. Not, not never American boots on the ground, but just give us the ability through equipment and training to be able to defend ourselves.
2: So a quick question, and because I, I, I also want to talk, and I think we both want to talk about the Electoral Count Act. Um, but are we comfortable where our are, are we comfortable with NATO unity at this point? Um, the chief of the German Navy, foreign, now former chief of the German Navy, resigned uh, after really going on the a very odd um, giving a going on a sort of a very odd tirade about Putin deserving some respect, uh, Crimea never coming back to Ukraine. Um, are, they, are we in cohort? Are we in lockstep right now with the key members of the NATO alliance? Well, David, it's a good question. And
1: this is how I analyze it for what it's worth. I think Vladimir Putin has done more to help unify the alliance uh, than anything in the past several years. So the transatlantic alliance, and in particular the NATO alliance, is stronger now than it was a month ago, stronger now than it was, you know, six months ago, a year ago. So in, in, a, in a strange sort of way, <laughs> uh, what Vladimir Putin has done by taking these unwarranted aggressive actions is he's brought the NATO alliance alliance much closer together. Um, I mean, look what Denmark is doing or look what, what Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia are doing, uh, look what Poland is doing. Look what Canada is doing. Look what the UK is doing. Um, you know, France is talking about putting a significant number of troops into this NATO force we talked about. Um, So that's all good. The outlier is Germany. And uh, Steve heard me talk about this. But, you know, I did not know actually about this uh, naval officer and, and, and what he said. But I do know that they are moving very slowly in providing the necessary approval for other countries to send weapons to Ukraine if those weapons were made in Germany originally and are subject to a license, where it requires an approval from Germany. An example I used on Meet the Press the other day is is an outrageous one to me, which is you have these howitzers that were built decades ago in East Germany. These are Soviet weapons. These are this is artillery howitzers. Ukraine wants it, Estonia has it. Estonia wants to help Ukraine all they can. Um, they're getting newer artillery. They're happy to give Ukraine these howitzers but they can't because they're subject to a license agreement and Germany has refused thus far to provide approval. So here you have Germany actually telling <laughs> a small democracy, member of the EU, member of NATO, you can't help Ukraine because those weapons were built decades ago in
2: East Germany. That makes no sense. What's the explanation from the German perspective? I mean, what what is, if, if they're, you know, based on your experience in dealing with these issues, if, I, if I've if i got, say, the German ambassador here, what's he saying in response? Why are they so dilatory?
1: Well, you should ask them. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think it's two things. One, they say they have a process, and they need to go through it. Uh, so do we, by the way, when we were asked by some of these same countries, including Estonia, to provide some munitions, as an example, uh, to Ukraine that, that required a uh, approval by us because of the license. We did it in less than a day. Normally that takes months. Um, and I am told by some of the research we've done that Germany would have the ability to speed this up if the chancellor thought it was important. So that's, But that's one thing. They say they have a process. But two, I've heard the argument that Germany wants to stay out of hot spots around the world and so they don't want to send arms to, uh, to hot spots. I would remind my friends in Germany, and they are our friends, and they're great allies in so many ways, but I'm understanding that they had the largest export ever last year of military equipment abroad. They make a lot of stuff in Germany, they export it, and one thing is military equipment, munitions, um, military equipment, and they send it to countries like Egypt. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, as you know, we have concerns about Egypt and their human rights record. And, and are hesitant to send uh, military equipment there. Sometimes Germany saw no problem with sending something to the most volatile part of the world, <laughs> arguably the Middle East. So I don't I don't know uh, what to say about it, except that I think when you're so dependent on Russia for your gas, um, and you know we know about Nord Stream One and now Nord Stream Two, uh, it makes it difficult to do the right thing.
0: Yeah, it seems like.
3: at luckylandslots.com available to players in the US excluding Washington and Michigan no purchase necessary VGW group void prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply
0: let me jump I, I know uh we're we're pushing up on time and i want to to jump to a uh, discussion brief discussion about elections um you saw the statement that president trump put out the other day about vice president pence saying if the president vice president had absolutely no right to change the presidential election results in the senate Uh, Why are Democrats and rhino Republicans working to pass legislation that will not allow the vice president to change the results of the election? Um, And he went on to say that Mike Pence, what you're doing tacitly acknowledges that Mike Pence did have the right to change the outcome. Um, What do you say to the the president? Does he have an accurate understanding of that? Um, and what kind of conversations are you having about making
1: changes? Yeah, he he might be right. I I think the statute is really confusing and it's ancient. <laughs> it's one of these 1800- Wait You think he
0: might be right? You think President Trump might be right that Vice President Pence could possibly have the unilateral under the electoral to the un, under,
1: the, under the under the ECA the Electoral because Count it's so Act. It's, it's very confusing. Um, and it also is very confusing as to what the role is of individual members. You know that, that one senator could require uh, a vote, which happened, by the way, you call in two thousand four, I believe it was in Ohio. Barbara Boxer was the one senator, uh, and it, you know, it, it. I think it's just it, it's time to revisit the whole thing. But because partly because he he, he may be accurate um, about that. So, uh, by the way, to my Republican friends, I sometimes raise the point that this is not about Mike Pence. He's, he's no longer vice president. Kamala Harris is now our vice president. And would they want her to have the decision, you know, in the next election, two and a half years from now, to say who won or who lost, despite what ever states certify? So, I mean, it's just wrong for our country. It's, it's constitutionally questionable in my view, because the constitution clearly allows the states to make this decision, um, state legislatures in particular, So I I think the whole thing may be unconstitutional, but at a minimum, let's clarify it and and, and take out the ambiguity. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, I think Republicans and Democrats alike should think that's a good idea.
2: So, uh, Senator, I, we at the Dispatch pride ourselves on very sober-minded headlines and not being clickbaity and all of that. But Steve let me put out a newsletter that was entitled "Stop Screwing Around and Reform the Electoral Count Act," with a, <laughs> with a subtitle that said, "We're idiots if we don't." Okay, so that's just cards on the table where I'm coming from. Uh, what is in in I, I completely agree. It, it needs clarification. It's an ambiguous mess. It's an eight, It's a single 809 word paragraph with one sentence that I think is 247, uh, words or so with multiple semicolons and dozens of commas, can we, is this something that we can realistically expect, uh, to get done is electoral co- count act reform. Is this something where uh, folks are going to say, "Ah, oh, yeah, we got it. We should do it. We should do it. And nothing's going to happen. How brass tacks, how realistic that we can get something concrete done on the electoral count act.
1: I think it's likely we can get it done because I just think like when people learn more about it, uh, they think it makes no sense. And by the way, they're shocked by the fact that you know, for instance, one member of the United States Senate could take the certification from a state like Ohio and say, you know, this doesn't count. Let's have a vote on it. Uh, it's just not it's just not fair. Um, so I, I think we get it done. I mean, Republicans and Democrats alike uh, would would like to clarify after an election's over, you know, what the results mean. And I think that's what this is about. So. That's less controversial, frankly, than some of the other things Democrats want to do, which I disagree with, which is basically to take away the power from states by preempting it with a federal standard. So in Ohio, as an example, we've had absentee voting for a long time. It's no fault, absentee, meaning you don't have to have a reason. And, you know, we're careful about it. And um, we we have had good luck with it. We've had good, safe, secure elections and good turnout. Um, but you know, for the federal government to step in and say it's got to be done this way or that way. I think, again, it's inconsistent with the Constitution, which vests that power in the state legislatures. But also, we're a country of, of uh, you know, laboratories of democracy or states. Some, some come up with some pretty darn good ideas, and then the other states pick it up in terms of how elections are, are run. So that's really the difference of philosophy. But Electoral Count Act is one. I don't think there's there was any deep philosophical <laughs> you know, support for it. I think it's just a question of cleaning up a confusing, ambiguous statute and making sure it's clear that, you know, an individual, uh, whether it's Kamala Harris or Mike Pence, would not have the ability to overturn the results of an election. Senator,
0: before we let you go, we have to ask you, of course, about your Cincinnati Bengals going to the Super Bowl. Um, (laughs) Super exciting. Is that a, would you have guessed that I could say that sentence (laughs) <laughs> At the beginning of this season, your Cincinnati Bengals going to the Super Bowl. So I, I, I'll 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 say, I thought the Bengals were going to be pretty good this year. Um, I, I think Jamar Chase is a great addition. I think the defense isn't great, but not bad. Joe Burrow is is a, a superstar. Joe Mixon's a good running back. The question was the offensive line. Are you surprised that the offensive line has overperformed the way that that happened? And to what do you attribute? the success uh, of the Bengals this year
1: overall? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, like you, was really optimistic and knew that we were going to have a good season, which for the Bengals means, you know, uh, any season that that ends with more wins and losses because we've had some tough times over the last uh, few decades. We did go to the Super Bowl in 1989. I was there in 1981, the only other time we went, and those were exciting times. But in the 90s, I think we had the worst record of any professional sports team. Uh, We've had a tough, tough time. And we're a small market team, and, you know, we, we haven't maybe been able to do quite as well in recruiting, um, in part because of our record and, and small market. But, boy, that's all turned around now. I mean, it's really exciting. I've had colleagues come up to me all week. I've been wearing my orange tie every day this week. Uh, I've, I've now run out of orange ties. Uh, and Bengals, you know, gear. I wore my Bengals hat on the floor yesterday, and the one of the uh, sergeant-at-arms made me take it off because i not allowed to wear hats on the floor, it turns out. But uh, I put it right back on when I left the floor. But um, <laughs> I think the O-line is has overperformed a little bit. I, I do think people forget the fact that the, the Browns, this is a family that, that owns the Bengals, the majority owner. They invested some money in getting some free agents and, and walking up that line a little bit because they knew they had to protect Joe Burrow better than they did last year. And remember, he had a, a, a serious knee injury last year. So the line isn't... Uh, you know, it isn't as good as uh, the, the uh, running back, quarterback, cornerbacks with great backfield. Uh, I, I think the two keys to our success this year have been, uh, one, the leadership of Joe Burrow, not just his arm, but his ability to really bring this young team together. Uh, obviously, Mixon's good. Joe, Joe Mixon is a good running back, and Jamar Chase is awesome, and they've got a chemistry that goes back to their LSU days, uh, he and Burrow, and that's been neat to watch. But the other part is the the defensive uh, backfield. I mean, our cornerbacks, or safety are really top flight. And what that does is it gives our defensive line the chance to take a shot at some of these these quarterbacks. And when you saw uh, Mahomes scrambling back there for, you know, what seemed like an eternity, it was probably 30 seconds, but it seems like for everyone you're watching it, it was because no one was open. And eventually – you know, a he, he, uh, defensive end was 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 able to track him down, or a linebacker, um, and so it's 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 partly our our O line is better, uh, but a lot of it I think is our defensive backfield has been awesome this year. And Joe Burrow is a leader. You know, one of the stats you look for in a quarterback is how they do when they've got a really difficult throw to, to make. You know, they've got like inches on either side. That's his specialty. And you know, it's Higgins uh, and. And Uzama and others. It's not. It's not just Chase, but he's set some. You know, some great receivers too. But he. He just. He's just got the ability to f- squeeze it in, uh, particularly when he throws across the middle.
0: What are you going to eat when you're watching the Super Bowl? Well, skyline <laughs> now chili. we getting of to the real questions.
1: Skyline chili. So we've got this crazy dish in Cincinnati called chili, Cincinnati chili. Yeah, I have a chili party here in D.C. every year, and half the people just can't get into it you know it's a acquired taste but i'm
0: i'm in that half (laughs) 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 i need spicy i can't have sweet with cinnamon my wife is from ohio Uh, and she loves she loves skyline yeah well
1: once you get once you get into it uh for most people anyway it becomes uh an addiction and my kids love it and jane loves it so we'll be doing a little skyline chili and maybe some Hoday beer. There's a, uh, there were some beer <laughs> made back in 81 or, or 88 called Hoday beer. And some people were bringing out their beer from the 1980s. And I think they're drinking it, which it will probably have a lot of hospitalizations, uh, <laughs> emergency room visits. If that's true. But, but I think there's going to be some new Hoday beer on the market in the next, next five or six days and, and might have a little of that, too.
2: Well, Senator, it's been uh, you know we really we really appreciate the time that you've given us, and I have to say, even though I grew up a Bengals fan, I I, I was in I've seen Icky Shuffle I've seen the Icky Shuffle from Icky, um, lived grew up in Northern Kentucky, but lived in Tennessee for a long time now. Tr- decisively transferred my allegiance to the Titans. I haven't looked at the stat sheet. I think we sacked Burrow eighty three times. Yeah, it was nine still, times. You, <laughs> yeah, you, you still beat us. I've forgiven you for that. I've forgiven Bengals Nation for that. And it's all go, go, all go Bengals from here. But thank you very much, Senator. Uh, really appreciate giving us the time.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks, David. Great to see you. And Steve, always good to see you. Yeah, good luck, guys. Take care.